As I mentioned yesterday, if you're surprised that a professor of economics is giving a Lenten message in this sacred place, I feel the same way. Uh, at one level, I'm here by invitation, but at another level, I trust we're all here by divine appointment as we celebrate this Lenten season, which culminates in Easter Sunday. Two years ago, a professor from China whose field of economics is similar to my own, came to Charlottesville under the auspices of the Chinese government to shadow me. His name is Frank Wu. Uh, we went to conferences together. He sat in on all my classes. He attended lectures that I gave. And Frank Wu and I became friends. And when he returned to his university in China, I was sorry to see him go. Now, when Professor Wu first arrived in Charlottesville, I invited him and his family to attend a Sunday worship service at the church where my wife and I are members. And the Wu family uh, attended most every Sunday morning for their entire 12 months in Charlottesville. So have you ever wondered what it would be like to attend a Christian worship service if you have no idea who Jesus is or what it means to follow him? Have you ever wondered how a sermon would be processed by someone who had never attended a Christian worship service before? And that question came to my mind a lot during Frank Wu's time in Charlottesville. Now, the worship service in my church usually starts with a hymn. And after the first hymn, my church has what we call a call to worship. And we then sing another song, and we follow it with a time of confession of sins. And here, a newcomer, like my friend Professor Wu, enters uncharted waters. Sins may be understood as something wrong or having bad intentions, but what's going on when we confess them? Frank Wu would hear words to the effect that Jesus stands ready to forgive us of our sins. But he wondered, why does Jesus do this? And how does Jesus do it? Now here's what happens next. We have what are called words of comfort and forgiveness. And these words in my congregation are put in a question and answer format. Now that's a format that would be very familiar to Frank Wu, my friend from China, because he's a professor. But nothing like this question ever comes up in an economics class. Here's the question the worship leader asks the whole congregation. What can wash away our sins? Now, to someone like Professor Wu, that question sounds very, very strange. You did something wrong in God's eyes. You committed a sin. And somehow, to deal with what you did wrong, one hears the expression, your sins can be washed away. Like it was a matter of washing your hands before eating or washing the dirty dishes after a meal. But if that isn't confusing enough, the answer to this question sounds bizarre. When the congregation in my church is asked, what can wash away our sins? Most of the people know the answer by heart. They've been asked that question many times, Sunday after Sunday. So they respond in unison, confidently, out loud, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, to someone like my friend, Professor Wu, that 
has got to seem very strange the first time around, and the second time, and the third time. Something is to be washed away, and blood is the cleanser. These words are among the most confusing and confounding things Professor Wu ever heard upon coming to the United States. But it doesn't end there. Later in the service, the congregation is asked another question. It's from the Heidelberg Catechism, and the question is, Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And in my congregation, we respond that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood, now let me repeat that, at the cost of his own blood, has fully paid for all my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil. So there's that word blood again, having something to do in some way with taking away the consequences of sin. And if that isn't enough, it would not be unusual in my church to close the worship service with a hymn, one with words like these, man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came, ruin sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. There's the word blood again. Hallelujah, what a savior. Now my friend Frank Wu is hearing for the first time of a connection between shed blood and forgiveness from sin. And I wondered, what if Frank were to raise his hand and ask, how can the shedding of blood forgive my sins? How indeed, if Frank Wu asked you that question, how would you explain the relationship? Well, in any explanation, it's often best to start at the beginning. So let's go to the book of the Bible that starts the Bible, whose title is actually translated Beginnings or Genesis. It was the easiest book in the Bible for Frank Wu to find. You open the front cover, there it is. The book of Genesis contains the most famous story ever written, the account of how the world began and the lives of the first two humans, Adam and Eve. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they realized they were naked and for the first time they felt shame. And the Bible recounts how Adam and Eve made fig leaves to cover themselves. And then we read in Genesis that God made coats of skin and clothed them. Now here's a question. Where did those coats made from animal skins come from? Maybe God created them out of thin air. He could do that. But I suspect Adam and Eve watched something they had never seen before. The killing of one or two animals. Animals that Adam and Eve knew from the Garden of Eden. Animals that were innocent of what Adam and Eve did in disobeying God. But the animals were the ones who were killed and whose blood was shed so that Adam and Eve might be able to survive the consequences of their sin. So what Adam and Eve witnessed that day was the beginning of the answer to our question, what will take away our sins? What price needs to be paid for disobeying a holy God? And the theological word that applies here is atonement. And I'm told that in the Hebrew, the word atonement means covering. 
Adam and Eve learned that to be covered involved the shedding of blood. Now fast forward, if you would, in the Bible from the time of Adam and Eve to a period many years later when God has chosen a people for himself. They're the people of Israel and they're in bondage. They're slaves in the land of Egypt. Now the Exodus story of the people of Israel involves some amazing components and what Hollywood made the most famous was the scene involving the parting of the Red Sea that enabled the Israelites to escape from Egypt. But before the exodus from Egypt, before the Red Sea was parted, something involving blood took place. God told the Israelites to take the blood of a lamb and swab it on the doorposts of their homes. And when the angel saw that blood, the angel passed over that home and the lives of everyone inside were spared. Here's how the Bible puts it from God's perspective. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So on that amazing night of the Passover, blood meant death for some, but it meant life for others. Now fast forward in your Bibles again to the time of Jesus. On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus is preparing to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. Even as it is celebrated now, it was celebrated then as a meal. And just as the words of a worship service can become familiar to churchgoers today, the words of the Passover meal would have been familiar to Jesus' disciples as they sat down with him. They knew what to expect but they didn't get what they expected. What they got was Jesus addressing the question and answer that at first hearing must have seemed so confusing and confounding to people like my friend Frank Wu. On that night, Jesus took a cup of wine and he told his disciples that it represented a new covenant. I tell my students, if they don't know the word covenant, think of it as a a new arrangement between God and human beings, and it's based on the shedding, not of the blood of an animal, but of his blood. And as observant Jews, each of those 12 followers of Jesus knew that atonement, the covering of their sins, could be accomplished only through the shedding of blood. There was nothing new in that. The sacrifice of a lamb was part of their religious experience. Its blood was symbolic of an innocent life given in exchange for the life of the guilty. But what would change that night, Jesus said, was that it was his own blood that would be shed. As a man, he lived a perfect life, and now the time for the Lamb of God, as Jesus had been named by John the Baptist, was at hand. What had been a symbolic sacrifice was going to be replaced by a real one. That's why when Christians commemorate the death and resurrection of Jesus by drinking wine that symbolizes his blood, these words are said, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. And these words are derived from what Jesus said when he celebrated Passover with his disciples that night. This became not only a Passover that took place in ancient Egypt, this is our Passover 
available to you and me. The Bible says, and when Jesus had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Now flash forward to the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, written by the Apostle John. This became the second easiest book of the Bible for my friend Frank Wu to find. You just go to the back cover and take a left. But while Revelation is an easy book to find, it's a very hard book to understand. And when John begins the book of Revelation, he writes, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. There's the blood of Christ again, front and center. So at the season of Lent, when we look forward to Easter Sunday, what do we come to understand about the blood of Christ? We come to understand that God adheres to a principle that is very strange to our modern ears. But it's been around from the very start of time that sin brings death into the world. At any season of the year, it's worthwhile to ask the question, why was it necessary for Jesus to die? It's particularly important at the season of Lent to ask, why did Jesus have to shed his blood in an agonizing death by crucifixion? If we lived lives like Jesus, his death would not have been necessary, but we can't pull that off. One biblical writer, Jeremiah, described you and me as having hearts that are more deceitful than we can ever realize. Tim Keller put it this way, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we are loved and accepted in Christ more than we could ever hope. So imagine you were in Egypt just after that first Passover. If you stopped Israelites in those days and you said, who are you and what's happening here? They would have said, I was a slave under a sentence of death. But I took shelter under the blood of the lamb and I escaped the bondage. And now God lives in our midst and we're following him to a promised land. And that's exactly what Christians say today. If you trust in Jesus' sacrifice, the greatest longings of your heart will be satisfied on the day you will sit down for that eternal feast in the promised kingdom of God. So if the Bible is correct, the blood of Christ cleanses us from our sins. And if it's in fact the case that we have sins, things we do, thoughts we think, actions we take that would shock others about us, that might even shock the devil himself, then we need to take seriously our need to be forgiven for those sins. And that's where Jesus comes into the picture. He does for us what we can't do for ourselves. I love my job at the University of Virginia, but one of the things that I puzzle over is when the entering class comes in. There's a convocation, and every year they're told, this is the best class we've ever had. You're the smartest, you're the best, you're the most talented, and you can do anything you want, given all your gifts and talents. And I listen to that, and I think the Christian faith comes along and says, nope, you can't overcome sin. You need a savior for that. 
I remarked at the beginning of this sermon how odd it is that blood can cleanse. A few days ago, I was playing with my dogs. They're English bulldogs, and they play pretty rough. And inadvertently, I got bitten, and the puncture drew blood. And some of the blood got on my trousers. And maybe you've discovered this. Blood is one of the hardest stains to get out. But think a moment about what blood does. It's what keeps us going. It's a transporter of nutrition and oxygen. It feeds us. It breathes life into us. It guards us against disease. It's what keeps us alive. And so maybe for Professor Wu, maybe for you, maybe for me, it isn't so strange, it isn't so bizarre that the creator and designer of our bodies should choose his own blood as the means of our spiritual nutrition, uh, as the means of our spiritual defense against the devil, as the means of our spiritual salvation. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let me close with the same blessing that I gave yesterday. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.